I'm getting my stuff together. I suggest that you do the same if you brought your Bibles or if you have your Bible app. Um, is a lot of information. It is going to be like a fire hose, and I'm going to do my best to help you with that. And so you can either scan the QR code on the uh, uh, seat back in front of you, and you can get to sermon notes there. Or if, if you want, you can get your Bible app open. Uh, they'll also be posted on Facebook, but, but you're going to need this. There's just a lot, and, and we needed it today. But if you go to your Bible app, your YouVersion Bible app, and at the very bottom, it'll, uh, to the very right, if you hit the tab more, and then you'll see events, and you'll hit events, and then you hit High Point Church, and then you want to hit saved in the top right so that you can actually have the notes past this service. So that will just help you because there's a whole lot to be writing down. But we need it. We need context for this chapter today and the topic that we'll be addressing. But before we do that, and maybe as you're kind of getting all together, I want to pray for our offering and that we, uh, if you're visiting with us, this is not for you at all. We're just so thankful you're here. Really, really are. We just want you to sit back. As a matter of fact, when you leave at our kiosk, we have a gift we'd love to give to you. So just um, stop by there and pick that up. But for those who call this place home, we, we worship God with our voices. We worship God uh, as, we, as we read scripture, as we pray, as we live out what we read. But we also offer, uh, we worship when we give back to him in a sacrificial way that reflects our understanding of what he gave us in Jesus. So let me pray and ask for God's blessing on our offering. Father, thank you so much for the blessing you've given us in Jesus. And I pray as we give back to you now, Lord, that we would honor you in that and that we would reflect our understanding of the sacrifice you've given us. And God, I pray that that offering would be used to help people and to bring the hope, the truth, the life and love of Jesus to people that need to know that. I ask your blessing over my time of teaching. God, I have nothing to say, but you have everything to say. Please speak through me into the hearts and lives of all who are here for your glory, for our good, and for those that we live around, that we might draw them to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I set you up. I, I might just be going in and out here. Matt, I'm not sure what that is, but technology is great till it messes you over. Um, so today we are in... Chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. And I, I have a, there's a lot of notes here. Um, and I didn't know any other way to do it. And so uh, this is going to be different than typically I would be up here and share a message. But I think it will be helpful. There's a lot of information that I need to give you so you can understand what chapter 2 is saying. So with that... Maybe, uh, I don't know, has the title come up? It has come up. There it is right there. <clears throat> this whole idea of Jesus coming back. I don't know how often you think about it. I, I know it is in the public conscience because like going back to what I said last week, there's a lot of movies related to Judgment Day and Jesus' return and Judgment Day are really inseparable. And there certainly have been a lot of books, written, movies made about like the Left Behind series. And... and um, Depending on how you understand the return of Christ, uh, that will impact maybe a the fear level you might have, the curiosity and intrigue that you might have. And I, I think it's important that we understand it. And, and certainly Paul thinks it's important because he he's, takes chapter two of, of the letter to people just like you and me in Thessalonica, which is a, a, a town uh, on the Aegean Sea coastline, uh, in which he sends to them in Thessalonica this, this letter uh, to people, like I said, just like you and me. 
And apparently what was happening, if you recall the first letter, was there was confusion about thinking that Jesus was like coming back like now. And so everyone was like, like selling all they had and, and, and not working. And, and that was putting a burden on those who were still working. And Paul's like going, knock it off. And he, and he kind of helps them understand that. And, um, and now apparently because Jesus didn't come back, and because the persecution and the struggle was real and it wasn't over, now, now they thought they missed it and it passed them by. And so what we're going to see in chapter 2 is where Paul, in his pastoral heart, wants them not to be confused. He wants them not to worry. And so I, I think that will come through as you, as you see uh, as we um, get to that place. And we're going to do that right now. And the way we do that is we go to our table of contents. That is our most popular page here. So if you want to go to your table of contents, you have an Old Testament, a New Testament. I want you to go to the book of 2 Thessalonians. It is halfway down in your New Testament table of contents. And you'll be at chapter 1. I need you to get to chapter number 2. <clears throat> and we will be off to the races. Now let's go back to this idea of Jesus coming back. And people seem to be uh, really intrigued with that. When I was in my engineering class in college, my engineering professor pulled me aside from class one day and he handed me a book that he had written. It was called Thy Kingdom Come. And I was a new Christian, brand new Christian. So I, I'm trying to figure the whole thing out. And he says that Jesus is coming back in 1986. Well, he missed that one, didn't he? Or, or either that or we all are like, I'm like, oh, God, yeah, we did miss it. We really, Paul, help us understand that we haven't missed him. So there's this intrigue. And, and I think, why do people want to know when Jesus is coming back? Because they want to be ready. And I, and I use air quotes because I think what ready can mean is I'd like someone to peg a date so I can have a lot of fun right up to that date. And then I'm going to get all ready. I mean, I've had people when I became a follower of Jesus in college and some of my friends were like, oh, dude, why'd you do that? I'm like, why, why don't you do it? You know, and um, here's what their answer was. Well, I, I'm going to do that. I, I just want to have some fun first. I mean, that came out of more mouths than I was really surprised at my friends. I, I'm just going to have, really? <laughs> do you think you're going to, you know, you're going to live that long for sure? Is, is that really how you kind of approach it kind of thing? Well, I think in some ways when, when we talk about Jesus coming back, it's kind of like, yeah, I kind of want, I want that date down. I want to kind of know exactly what's happening. So, you know, I can kind of be ready for that. Uh, so I want you to be ready. I want to be ready today. And I'm not doing this because I know Jesus is coming back tomorrow. But I want us to live ready because our world needs us to live ready. Because Jesus is coming back. Thank you, God, for that. And I want as many people as possible to see that as a, a great day and not one to be concerned about, as Paul will make clear here in just a moment. So Hopefully you have your Facebook, uh, or excuse me, you have your notes pulled up. <clears throat> They're going to be up here. Don't try to write them down. There's just too many. But I want to talk about, we need context for what we're going to look at. And what I'm going to give you are the four prominent end time views. And believe me, there are a lot of big words and I'm going to go quick. But I, I think it's important that we do that and then we can look at chapter two. So let's look at these four views. Uh, and these are of Jesus's physical return to the earth. Not, not spiritual as some people want to kind of diminish his return. It's just going to be a spiritual. No, this is physical. This is visible as coming. Okay. The first view that I want to address, and this is where uh, the um, Left Behind series comes out of. 
This is a, a view that's really been popularized, relatively speaking, uh, not that long ago. Uh, and this is where, um, you, you know, like, like Christians all of a sudden, poof, they disappear in the rapture, that kind of stuff, okay? And the fancy word for that end times view is dispensational premillennialism. Turn to the person next to you and say that. Dispensational premillennialism. Spit all over them while you do it. <laughs> it's a big word. I like to say it because I, uh, you know, I'm just, you might think I'm smart. Um, but dispensational premillennialism physically returns to the earth. And he does so after a seven-year tribulation period. Very difficult time. And then he rules for a thousand years. And that's where you get the term millennium. Okay? So the church will be raptured or removed before that seven-year tribulation period. And that goes to what I was just referencing before. Poof, all of a sudden Christians disappear. You know, like your pilot's flying a plane, all of a sudden, ping, he's gone. And not a good turnout for those that are in the plane. This is also when the resurrection of believers will happen. And together with those who are uh, alive on the earth, will go to be with Christ for seven years. Following the millennium, the final judgment will happen. And the resurrection of unbelievers will happen. And what Jesus will do is he will judge the uh, resurrected unbelievers and Satan. And they will be, as Revelation chapter 20 says put into the lake of fire, the great white throne judgment, which I don't uh, believe that that's to be taken literally. I talked about that last week, what hell really is. It's just the absence of God and the anguish and mental torment that comes with that eternally speaking. For believers, we walk into a new heaven and a new earth. We get our glorified bodies and the new earth and, and we, we're known as we know now. And it, it's, it's what Paul says, I is not seen, ear has not heard, nor mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. It's going to be mind-blowing and certainly worth the wait and the sacrifice. So that, <clears throat> well, one other thing that's really important about, about dispensationalism is that the promises of God that are in the Bible are treated separately with the nation of Israel and the church. They run on parallel tracks. And you'll see with some of the other views, they merge, but not with uh, dispensation premillennialism. They, they, are, they are kept separate. All right, what's the second one? Historical premillennialism. It's similar to dispensational premillennialism, but also different. Jesus physically returns again to earth after a time of tribulation. We don't know how long that is, but there's a time of tribulation. And he rules literally for a thousand years. Satan is bound. He's not completely thrown in the lake of fire or defeated. He is, he's bound. And the church will not will not be removed or raptured from the tribulation. Again, there'll be the resurrection uh, of believers. Uh, and then the final judgment will come after the millennium in which Satan is loosed briefly and kind of wreaks some havoc there. But then he's completely defend, uh, defeated. And then we have the resurrection of the unbelievers. And just like dispensationalism, they are then sent to hell and believers go to the new heaven and the new earth. And here... The church replaces the nation of Israel as the people of God. So, in other words, those who are followers of Jesus, regardless of ethnicity or uh, historical background, it is those who are followers of Jesus all become the people of God and the promises that are there for the people of God that have not been fulfilled yet are fulfilled through and in and among the church. Thirdly, is we have all millennialism. <clears throat> 
And this is when Jesus physically returns to the earth at some time in the midst of tribulation that's taking place on the earth. There is no literal millennium before or after. And the church will not be removed or raptured. Jesus returns. He completely defeats Satan and the powers of evil. And both believers and unbelievers are resurrected at the same time. And then judgment comes. Satan and the uh, unbelievers are sent to hell. Believers go to the new heaven and the new earth. And the promises that are made to the Jews in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the church, similar to historical premillennialism. Last one. We're almost there. Last one. Post-millennialism. And this is when Jesus physically returns after the millennium. As a climax, get this, as a climax of the golden era for the church. Meaning that most of the world has turned to Christ. Things are good and getting better. You can see why this view has fallen out of favor. Uh, really since World War I in, in, in one sense. The church is present during the millennium and is leading the way in preaching the gospel and moving uh, out and moving forward and expanding the kingdom of God. Jesus returns. He completely defeats Satan and the powers of evil. And again, just like we've been saying, believers and unbelievers are resurrected at the same time. And unbelievers and Satan go into the great white throne judgment, the lake of fire. And believers go into the new heaven and the new earth in our glorified states. And a large number of Jews, characteristic of this view, come into the life of the church and become followers of Jesus. So there are your four views. Rather quickly, man, a little plug. We're having a class starting in March exploring end times with Dwight Anderson. I would encourage you, if you really want to get deeper into that, you want to get into that class, okay? But what we need to do now with is we need to ask the question and answer it because Paul answers it here. When is Jesus going to come back? Now you're thinking, well, wait a minute. He's kind of flip-flopping here a little bit before, because in, in chapter 5 of, of 1 Thessalonians, listen to what he said in verses 1 and 2. He says, about the times and the seasons, brothers, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Paul was saying to them earlier, don't get so hung up on this. It's not worth it. You'll never know the exact day in which this is going to happen. Thieves do not go to people's houses and go, I'm here to steal stuff. They don't do that. You don't know when he's going to come. So don't get all worked up about it. Because again, they were thinking, oh goodness, it's all happening. Let's all sell everything. Well, now he changes his tune a little bit only because the circumstances have changed. Because what he's going to do is we're going to read all of chapter two, and I want you to listen for three signs. They're general, but there are three signs. And this is where we see Paul's pastoral heart. He sees now they think, oh my goodness, because I'm still suffering, because the persecution is still happening. If, if, if anything, it's ramped up and, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. And maybe we missed him. And Paul does not want them to agonize over that. And so, as God divinely inspires Paul, he gives him three general signs, of which I want you to listen for as I read them to you. Three general signs. People make a lot about Jesus' return. And I think we need to be careful about that. So, with that in mind, three signs. Just listen for them. I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 1. 
Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter as if from us alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary, publicizing that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you about this? Let me pause just for a moment. Clearly, Paul has talked to them about this before, specifically that we don't have. And you, you might be frustrated by that, but we don't have exactly what that conversation was or what that letter was like. We have two letters that he sent. Uh, apparently somehow, some way, there was some other information that they swapped <clears throat> that was not written down. Now we might think, well, that's a bummer, but I trust you, God has given us everything we need. If God knew we needed that, then he'd stuck it in there. But I just want you to make, you know, just understand that. Verse six, and you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every unrighteous deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false, so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth but enjoyed unrighteousness. But we must always thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions, meaning the apostolic teachings that you were taught either by our message or by our letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. Okay, did you hear the three? Two of them, I think, jump out at you. Maybe the third one takes a little bit more effort. But let's go back and let's look at them. The first is in verse three. It says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way for the day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. So he's talking about apostasy means a falling away from God. And keep in mind, again, what he's giving them are public signs. These are things understand and recognize because they've been Clearly, Satan wants to mess with my mic here. So when he says apostasy, what he's talking about is he is talking about an, an epic, identifiable moment in which God's people, the Jews, just forsake him. In which even people in the church turn, turn away from him and renounce their faith. Now, we might think, Wow, that kind of sounds a little bit like what's going on now. Well, in our country, yeah, in a way it is. I would agree with you on that. 
But in other places, the, the, the news of Christ and the good message of Christ, it is getting out and, it, and it's doing amazing things. So I, th- I think we have to be careful not to be a doomsayer here and, and, and jump to that. But there will be an identifiable falling away, an epic falling away from God. Secondly, verses six and seven, he says, and you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. Do you, do you hear that this one who restrains is both a what and a he? And, and that's the second sign, is that there'll be the removal of the restrainer. The one who's restraining the man of lawlessness is gonna be removed. But that restrainer is both a what and a he. It's an inanimate organization of some kind, but it's also a person, a he. And that makes it challenging to kind of identify who this is. And believe me, people are trying to figure it out all the time. Why? Because they want to be ready. I'll give you some possibilities that might help you to accept and just see the reasonableness to what he's saying The first one is the one that people jump to the most, and that is the Holy Spirit is the he, and the church is the what. And how is that removed, or how is he and that what removed? By the rapture of the church. And so there's a sense that when the rapture happens at the beginning of that seven-year tribulation period, now the restrainer's gone, and the man of lawlessness, boom, comes on the scene. Secondly is Paul is referring to himself, And the gospel that he's preaching, the good news that he's preaching, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, he says that once the gospel is preached to all nations, and specifically nations means ethnic groups, I'm coming back. And so we look to the proliferation of the gospel as it gets out into all of the uh, ethnic groups. And once that is done, we have the promise of Jesus's word, I'm coming back. And, And maybe that is what, Paul's referring to that the gospel has spread out. The last one might, might surprise you. And um, I didn't say this before, but I said in the first verse, so I'll say it now. I, I really want to study this more and get a, a, a better grasp on this. I, I have at different times done this. Uh, and and I, what I've done, I've come out and I lean in the direction of amillennialism. I'm just showing my cards there. Amillennialism, believe it or not, was the, was the, it has the longest uh, in terms of accepted as the traditional orthodox view. Dispensationalism, which is the um, left behind stuff, that's relatively new, okay? Now, what we have here is when um, Jesus said that, that to, to every nation, uh, that, that once that's done, then, then, then Jesus comes back. But then we have that, that third element, which is human government. That Paul, and this is where I think, Paul might actually be talking about not a future event or super future event like for us. He's talking about Rome. He's talking about the emperor and the law and order. And so, so what restrains the man of lawlessness from coming onto the scene is law and order. But once anarchy is present and law is gone, now you have the coming of the Antichrist. And so those are just three possibilities. There could be more, but, but just understand that, that that is necessary to happen. Again, it's gonna be public. We're going to see it. We'll know because of what we've read here that that's going to happen. So the last one, the third one, 
is what I've already said. Verse 3 says about the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And then in verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. And then in verse 9, it says the coming of the lawless one. So the third sign publicly, we've got apostasy. We have this epic um, falling away uh, from God, which we, we, again, it will be visible. It will be demonstrable. There's going to be the restrainer is going to be gone. And all of a sudden we're going to see that. And thirdly is we're going to see the man of lawlessness who first John, and, and this maybe is how you know the man of lawlessness's name or his identity is first John two eighteen. John says this children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, Antichrist, capital A, is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. We know from this that it is the last hour. It's a parallel version to what Paul is saying. Now, when he says many Antichrists, you're thinking, well, that sounds a little weird. What does that mean? Well, to be an Antichrist is to deny the deity of Jesus. It is to deny that Jesus is God in flesh, that he's the Messiah and the Savior. And anyone who denies him of being that is anti-Christ. But John capitalizes anti-Christ. He's making reference to the crescendo, the climax of the antichrist is the antichrist, the man of lawlessness. Again, who people try to peg an identity. Who, who might that be? And throughout history, we've seen different people try to point to, to Hitler or to Stalin. Some have pointed to the Pope, particularly during the Inquisitions. But what we know is that man is still to come. And what's he going to look like? Verse four, right? He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God. He, he's, he's like a, he's trying to be like a, a mini Messiah, a false Messiah, a faux Messiah. And, and when is this going to happen? Well, in all the views we see the Antichrist, he, he comes right there in the midst as tribulation intensifies, which also means very closely after that comes the return of Jesus. And so the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is revealed. And he's revealed at the start of the intensification of the tribulation. And when it says that he sits in God's sanctuary, some want to understand that literally what's going to have to happen is that a temple is going to have to be built again in Jerusalem and then you're going to have the Antichrist who takes the form of a political military leader who sits there and is enthroned. And who is with his words, when he says, when he, when he, says he sits, in other words, he is disrespectful to God. He's in God's place, but he doesn't stand at attention out of respect for God. He sits. So it's, it's understand figuratively, not literally. My personal opinion is that makes more sense than the, the temple being rebuilt and someone literally sitting there. But we have this faux fake Messiah who expects worship and who, who deifies himself and, and says that he is God. Verse four, publicizing that he himself is God. Now, before we think that, oh, that's gonna be obvious. There's no way we'll miss that. I mean, when someone like that, yeah, we know about you. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verses four and five. He says, for many will come in my name. They will deceive many. My friends, it's not gonna be that easy. 
Unless you're really in tune and connected with Christ, it, it's not going to be that easy. Verse 9, it says what? The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders. The two things I want to point out there. First off, do you notice that the Antichrist and Satan are two different people? They're two different beings. Now, you might have thought they were one. No, they're not one. The Antichrist is, is indwelt or possessed, whatever you want to talk about, and he carries out and does the bidding of Satan. And he's going to be really good at it. He's going to deceive many. So we have to be really careful that we stick close to God's word. Now, what I want you to notice in verse 7, what precedes the man of lawlessness being revealed? Verse 7, what does it say? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So there's before he's revealed, before he comes onto the the way with lawlessness. Now, lawlessness is different, and we need to understand the difference between lawlessness and disobedience. Because disobedience acknowledges an absolute right and just says, I choose to disobey. But lawlessness says there is no absolute right. Right and wrong are how I want them, how I feel they should be. Does that sound at all like a little bit of what's going on with us? That lawlessness is already at work. In a moral sense, it means there's no absolutes. Hey, you do you, I'll do me, your truth, your truth, my truth, my truth. That's foolishness. And then there's a civil sense in which the lawlessness, in the, and it's, there's going to be anarchy. I mean, are we, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be really careful, but there's, there's been things as of late that you kind of go, well, wow, wow, is that something that we're trending towards? Is, is, is that where this could be going? The idea is just to stay informed, not to get, you know, no fear mongering, not to get, but understand what precedes the coming of the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. And this lawlessness, it's working in a subversive way, secretly. It's, it's, it's trying to pull the world's belief uh, and, and, and worship of God away and over to the one who will sit in there and say, I am God. And we, I think we see this just all around us. There's so many destructive ideologies that are in play. I mean, that feelings now trump fact. These are the facts here they are. How do you know they're true? This is how I feel, and how I feel is, is, is more real to me and should be more real to you than fact. I mean, we're, we're dealing with that now. How about consumerism and materialism where greed is actually valued? We champion that. We celebrate people who are just living these lavish lifestyles that are just seemingly so like, wow. Now, I realize I don't understand, and I, I don't in any way, in no way am I saying that wealth is a bad thing. I'm not at all. I just see a lot of hurt in the world. And I know that we, we have collectively, particularly in America, we collectively have enough money to fix a lot of problems if we're willing to give it up, if we're willing to really see money for what it is and how it helps others and not what it is for us. Postmodernism, I mean, that's been around for a while now. And postmodernism, the whole idea is, hey, how can anyone know what is true? This is what's happening like right now in our sexual revolution, the sexual revolution that we're dealing with. I can do and I can identify in any way I want. 
I mean, this is the stuff that, this is preceding, this is out there. And then the, uh, the Antichrist, as the mystery of lawlessness is out there, the Antichrist is revealed. Now, what I want us to know, and, and, and it ends well, verse eight. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. This is a reference to his second coming. It's like, as I said last week, all wrongs will be made right. We, we can hold on to that. But what we have to understand is that Jesus' second coming is not important unless he had a first coming. And what it says is what destroys Satan is the brightness and the glory of Jesus' second coming. But in order for it to be glorious and bright, we needed the first coming. And Jesus came first, not to do this, but to be a servant and to live a perfect life in your place and in my place because we couldn't do it. And then he died a substitutionary death that he didn't deserve. And then God raised him three days later and said, this is the guy. And when we put our faith and trust in him, we're, we're, we're born again and we, we become the, the, the people of God and we have the security and the assurance that when Jesus comes a second time, it is, it's gonna be good. It's gonna be wonderful. We have nothing to fear. Now, in order for that to happen, I, I wanna pull out of what's gonna happen in Jesus' second coming and apply it to his first coming in which he says that when he comes, what, what's gonna happen to the Antichrist? He will become nothing. And, and that is how we have to see when Jesus comes, we, we need to realize we're nothing and we need a savior. I had, I had an amazing conversation with a gentleman this week Good guy, smart guy, uh, he does well, and, and he's going to do well. You can just see he's the kind of guy that whatever he sets his mind to, he's going to be successful in what he does. And, and we had this conversation, and, and I tried to tell him, dude, you're broken. You, you, you need a savior. You're spiritually bankrupt. And, and, and with all uh, politeness and kindness, he, he just didn't see it like that. Uh, you know, and I think, again, because of what he'd done, and I kept going, dude, you need to see it like that. Because it's no coincidence that the 12 steps in AA, which was once a, 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 and still is to a degree, was founded by followers of Jesus. The first step, what is the first step? I'm helpless. I can't do a doggone thing. And any addict will tell you, and you've seen it. If 1% of them thinks they can pull it out, they're not going to break free from the addiction. They need to need help I'm a mess I'm nothing and, and that is what Jesus is going to come and what's going to be put upon Satan uh, the, 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 or the Antichrist is that he will be brought to nothing we need to be brought to nothing Jesus uh, said it this way whoever seeks to save his life will lose it and that's what we do when we try to set our own rules. We try, we're trying to save our lives. When we call right, right, and wrong, wrong, regardless of what God says, we're trying to save our lives. And when we try to save our lives, Jesus is saying, you will lose your life. Because in this room, there is both lawlessness and disobedience in this room. There are some of you in here who do not believe God's law is God's law and that it's absolute. You're, you're kind of living from your own thing. And you're doing that because you're trying to save your life. And Jesus says, whoever seeks to save his life is going to lose it. 
And so there's, there's, there's selfishness. It's all about putting me first. The same is true with disobedience. Disobedience is for those who are followers of Jesus. There are times when we know there's an absolute truth and we should follow, but we choose not to. And, and why do we not do that? Because we're selfish. We defer to that, to that temptation to be selfish, to put myself first, maybe even to use you to get what I want. That is alive and well in here. And rather than selfishness, we are to live as followers of Jesus with a selflessness. And, and Jesus said it this way, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that's what we need to recognize, the mystery of lawlessness. We need Jesus to come the first time. We need to be nothing and put our faith and trust in him. And then the second time when he comes, he... We, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we're going to be resurrected in these new bodies and we're going to walk along a new earth and it's going to be glorious. It's going to be amazing is what we have and the hope that we have because of what Jesus has done. So that's, that's chapter two with the context that I was talking about. Let me just end it this way. What do we do? So what, Kevin? Well, let me talk first to the seeker. You've not put your faith and trust in Christ yet. You're here. Maybe you're checking it out. You're just, you're, and I, I'm so glad you're here. So happy. But would you please accept this as a warning? This is a warning, my friends. Accept the truth of God's word and Jesus' message. You see, Jesus is coming back like a thief in the night. And you might think, I got all this time, but you may not. Accept it today that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to God except through him. And then that verse 11, when you're looking at yourself going, okay, what, what does it mean? He says, for this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false. What is up with that? It's the same thing that was up with God in Romans 1. And at some point, what God will do is he will let you have what you want. And when you live a selfish life, and the longer you live a selfish life, the harder your heart gets. And at some point, God here, not to everyone, but to some, he will step back and let your heart become so hardened that you will believe the delusion of the Antichrist and of what the world's message is. And you will essentially be judged here rather than at the very end. And I, and I, I just... There is time, but don't think you have all the time in the world for, for different reasons. To the follower of Christ, may I say this? He says, stand firm and hold to the traditions, the apostolic teachings you were taught. There are going to be constant temptations and threats and challenges from our adversary. And we need to stand firm, he says. And the only way we can really resist the false teaching is we cling to the true teaching. And, and to really do that, we, we cannot stand alone. We cannot stand firm alone. We need other people. We need a community of faith. And I don't mean you just merely come and attend. I mean you get in to the community. People know you. You know them. Uh, people help you understand what the truth is, how to live the truth out, and then even in a, in, a, in a gentle, humble way, hold you accountable to the truth like you hold them accountable to the truth. And, and my friends, that works, and that's how we stand firm so that we're ready and we're not caught off guard. And then secondly, he says in verse 17, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. 
we've got to share what we know is the way to salvation because Jesus is coming back. And we know what that is. And we've got to step out past our fears and we've got to share that. That, that, That's what we've got to do. And you can do that in so many different ways. I've shared with you that over the years, what, what I, you know, I, I try to take when, when we're to go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you, and Lord, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. It's kind of like as we go, how can we be sharing the good news so people are prepared when Jesus comes back? And I told you that when I go to restaurants, I always ask the waitress or wait staff when they're done taking order, I said, Hey, is there any way we could pray for you? We're, we're about to pray for our food. Is there any way we can pray for you? Maybe for you or for a, a loved one, just a burden you're carrying. Can, can we do that? Well, Friday night we were out. No different night. I asked this waitress uh, that all I knew about her was she had tattoos on her fingers. And I wondered, that looks like it has to hurt. <laughs> and I said to her, I said, is there any way we can pray for you? We're about to pray for our food. And she looked like she was going to start crying. And she was able to get a, a, a brief prayer out. I said, okay, we got you covered. And, and didn't think much. We prayed for her right there. Didn't think much about it. But then when she brought the bill, on the back of the bill, she said, thank you for your kindness. I would tell you this personally, but I would cry if I did. And I wrote back to her after I tipped her well. <laughs> we should be the most generous people. We're, we're followers of Jesus. I said, God knows you're hurting and he sees you and he cares for you. And I get emotional about it because there are people out there that are hurting and, and we know the answer to their healing. And we just got to get it out there. We, that's all. They're there. Now, granted, I've had some times where people didn't like it and, and okay. But man, you get something like that, God's saying, Keep doing that. That's who we are, okay? That's who we need to be, and I know you'll do that. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for your patience with us. I pray your blessing over this information, Lord God, that it would not overwhelm us and that we would not get fixated on it, that we would stand firm trusting you and your time and when all that will be. But God, thank you that you've given us some signs by which we can be prepared and even more prepared. But Lord God, I pray that we're ready today. And those that are not, Lord, may they put their faith and trust in you today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.